pre-workout you know but I'm good I'm out here I'm lit so thank you, you do that without pre-workout you're amazing. I've never had pre-workout before ever. it makes me feel like rue everybody listen everybody I know be getting the shakes and the jitters and stuff and I'll be looking like I guess I just like do my running raw like I just be like I'm gonna just do it you know just straight up so it's definitely working for me but you know to each his own <laughs> to each his own how's your week been ma'am it has been so <laughs> even I wouldn't even it hasn't been bad it hasn't been like overwhelmingly good I just things are going well Mm -hmm. um you know my personal life is going good there's nothing nothing really going on with my personal life it's like alarming or red flag so that's good and you know it's just the life of a therapist dog Okay. you know that's I, really it i totally totally understand that baby i'm mm. looking forward to a, a little three-day weekend soon coming up so i'll probably take that day that i have a rest i'll probably do like a self-care day to like really hone in on i'm like i might get a massage i think i'm gonna go to the chiropractor um probably get my nails done like really just cater to myself have you planned out like when you're going to do that and everything? Like, I know we talked about that. Before. I have. I think I'm going to do it on um, February 21st, which is President's Day. And I don't mm-hmm. have to work that day. So wonderful. that'll be nice because I really need this back cracked. It is. And not in that way. I'm just, like, I really need these bones realigned. Mm. It's interesting because I'm doing mine on the 18th. I, I, I think I work on president's day so i'm like oh i'm uh i'm gonna be off on my on that friday and i'm definitely gonna do things that i'm like oh that i could typically i guess do on a weekend but more like i'm allowed to see it's, it's not gonna be as many people there because mm-hmm. you know, go get these 
get these feet done, you know, about 10 a.m., you know, I might like, be nice and good to go. I can, I'm going to start drinking champagne at like 11 o'clock in the morning. And I mean, I'm going to make me a mimosa. Uh, um, You know, I'm going to just, I'm going to do me. I'm going to do me, dog. Treat, treat yourself, okay? Speaking of doing me, you know I am a Negro, and it is Negro History Month. Is shout out to all the Negroes. Shout out to all our niggas all over the world. Okay. Mm. Um, and for Black History Month, we really want, I mean, we really wanted to focus in on us, you know, black for, people. This episode is for us by us. This episode is gonna boom. That's the episode title. Save that. <laughs> I'ma save it. Fubu. Save that. This title is Fubu. It's Fubu, baby. Yeah, exactly. So this this month specifically, we are only going to talk about one topic and one topic only, and it is going to span over a two-part series. And we are going to discuss mental health and the Black community, baby. Because one thing about us, we have been tussling with mental health since... The beginning of time. Lynn. You yeah. Me? Yeah. So okay. we're really going to hone in on that today. Specifically, I am going to talk about three parts um, of like the mental health stigma that kind of has us in a chokehold in the Black community. Um, so I'm going to talk about specifically so I can give information is the statistics of Black mental health. Mental health I'm going to talk about the whiteness as a foundation to mental health care and also emotional hesitation linked to mental health. Mm. What about you? mm, So I will be speaking um, from a perspective of cultural competence and how it um, plays a part in diagnoses. Mm -hmm. Um, Also be talking about the lack of diversity um, in the mental health community um, and how that plays a role. And then lastly, I'll be talking about some people's negative past experiences with mental health and kind of diving into some, maybe some mental health horror stories about opening up and what that looks like. And this series is just really touching on why, you know, our people, our community struggle with um, accepting um, mental health treatment. And I think, you know, I can say I, from my perspective, I do feel like it's progressing. It is becoming more normalized. Um, Yeah, for sure definitely gets more normalized but there is that you know now I would say um what I find specifically like maybe with some of our older clients they have some of those more traditional fears and anxieties when it comes to mental health treatment um and how that perpetuates people from not necessarily seeking out the help that they need right now yeah for sure I think over time um we as a people as black people especially us I think kind of starting with millennials I don't want to say that we are kind of those that have started the talk about mental health but child, i don't think the baby boomers was really talking you know anyways but i really think that the conversation about mental health is starting to become normalized which makes my heart happy but um we we kind of we've made a couple of strides but i feel like we still have kind of a long way to go when it comes to mental health yeah um, also, I just want to put out there, the Black experience is not monolithic. Um, so if you feel like, oh, this does not fit me, I don't really know what y'all are talking about. This does, hey, just eat the meat and spit out the bones. That's that's my disclaimer. 
I think that's what, and I, yeah, because every, and I think, but I, I would say, like, with anything that we do discuss, like, it's not a everybody must experience this. This is not right. Maybe an episode that really hits home for you, and there may be an episode that you like, oh, that really hasn't been my experience. So, we are just going to be talking about um, what are some common experiences that some people have identified as some of their barriers um, for reaching out and seeking mental health treatment. Right. Um, so let me get started with statistics, right? So we as Black Americans, we make up about 13.3% of the U.S. population. Also, I want to add, these statistics are coming from a valid and reliable source. So if you're saying like, oh, where is she getting this shit from? Is she just taking this shit off Google? I am not. This is actually statistics used by the American Psychiatric Association, okay, which is a valid and reliable source. So disclaimer. And put that out there. All right. So we as African Americans make up 13.3% of the U.S. population, right? And across the U.S., we know that we are made up of different type of ethnicities. Um, so whether we're like from the Caribbean or Central America or other countries, like culturally, we are super diverse. Um, about 27% of us African Americans live below the poverty line compared to about 10.8% of non-Hispanic whites. Um, and approximately 30% of African-American households are headed by a woman with no husband um, present compared with about 9% of white households, right? So that is just talking about the African-American population in general. Now we are going to move on to mental health um, status and like use of services and disparities. When we talk about mental health um, specifically, so rates of mental illnesses in African-Americans are similar with those of the general population, but the disparities exist in regard to mental health care services. So that means that we as Black people often receive poor quality of care and lack of access to culturally competent care. If you are a Black person, I'm very sure that you are probably aware of that, that child, when we go to the hospital or when we go to the doctor or when we go to our primary care physician, we don't get as much care as when we are compared to other counterparts, right? Um, the next one is only one in three African-Americans. Oh, not. Oh, oh, so, ooh. No, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. All right. <laughs> Only one in three African-Americans who need mental health care receive it. One in three. Mm. That's kind of low. Um, and when we compare ourselves to non-Hispanic whites, we have a, um, African-Americans with any mental illness have lower rates of any mental health service use, including prescription medications and outpatient services but have higher use of inpatient services. So I bet you're wondering, like, what is an inpatient service? Inpatient service means going to the ER, going to the hospital, right? Um, so when compared with whites, we as the Black, pe Black people, we're less likely to receive guideline consistent care. We're less frequently included in research. And like I said before, we're more likely to use emergency rooms or primary care rather than go to an actual mental health specialist, a mental health professional, whatever the case might be, whether it's a counselor or a social worker or a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Um, yeah, 
Compared with the general population, African-Americans are less likely to be offered either evidence-based medication therapy or psychotherapy. Psychotherapy is just like a fancy word for counseling. Mm-hmm. That's really all it is. Um, compared with whites with the same symptoms, African-Americans are more frequently diagnosed with schizophrenia and less frequently diagnosed with mood disorders. However, this most of the time is a misdiagnosis. And it is because we as black people, we are we express our symptoms of emotional uh, emotional distress. Lord have mercy. We express our symptoms of emotional (laughs) distress vastly differently from the rest of like the general population of like of our counterparts. Right. Um, Also, black people with mental health conditions particularly like those who have schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and other psychosis are more likely to be incarcerated than people of other races. And those are just, I mean, we could continue to go on and on and on and on about the statistics of that, but we ain't got time for all that. So those are just like the few that I feel are significantly significantly important to this talk. Because after reading all that, it's like, damn, is any are and I mean I know some of us are going to see therapists, but when we look at that, like one in three black people are going to a mental health specialist, and we are less likely to seek out a mental health specialist, but are more likely to go to an ER or a hospital when we know we're not going to get the correct care when we actually go to those places. It is wow. The statistics are a little scary. Oh, the math. The math is mathing. The math is mathing. Yeah, oh. it's mathing. It really is. Mm. Isn't that kind of scary, though, when you think about it? That is scary. And it, it's it's scary just because it, it's, it puts, um putting, you know, just saying like, oh, a lot of people and like having general terms of being like, statistically, this is what the numbers look like, you know, I think correlates with so many other things. And I think this is a huge topic that we could really talk like delve into like how that plays into you know the the school to prison pipeline and Mm -hmm. other things just because of you know the fact that there are these you know barriers um whether it was created by others or created within us that kind of keep us from seeking out the help that we need and it's 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 you know it's it's, it can be a little sad and disheartening to know that there's some people out there who are not getting the help that they really need to to advance. Fisha, what you got up next? So I am going to start off with talking about um, cultural competency and diagnosis. Um, So as a requirement, I'm pretty sure for any graduate program that you attend, there is a course, um, there's a diagnostic course, and there is also a course on um, cultural competency. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when we talk about cultural competence, it's basically the, the ability to relate effectively to individuals from various groups and backgrounds. Um, culturally competent services respond to the unique needs um, of members of minority populations and are also sensitive to the ways in which people um, with disabilities experience the world. So within the behavioral health system specifically, um, cultural competence is like a guiding principle so that services are culturally sensitive and provide, um, provide culturally appropriate prevention, outreach, assessment, and intervention. So this, when we talk about cultural competence, we're talking about race, ethnicity, language, sexual orientation, gender, age, disability, class or socioeconomic status, education, and religious or spiritual orientation. 
Um, and so the reason that I think that this is such a huge part of it is because we, they teach you cultural competence. They teach you how to, you're supposed to take um, a person's background and culture into their assessment. But the DSM is a book with just data. Mm-hmm. If they this, it equals this. If they think this this many times, it equals this. If mm-hmm. they, it equals this. So although we're taught cultural competence in school, it's really like a unique tool that you have to use. It's, I feel like to me, it's very self-guided. Um, with trying to learn somebody's culture but you know typically if you're doing an assessment you have 45 minutes an hour to do like an assessment and there isn't a lot of time to really find out about somebody's culture outside of asking about their race you're asking right questions so it can be difficult to assess is this something that's culturally appropriate to them or is this like culturally you know dissimilar to who they are and you know typically the bill for an assessment like you know you got to slap a diagnosis and you know get them quick because insurance gonna be like the hell i'm supposed to do with this and then even with it within that system certain diagnoses you can't even bill for or you won't get paid or certain insurances that you want paid right it kind of creates a dynamic um and what i think you know so i've done some research and just looking at things about um cultural competence and how it plays a part into things that happen um did you know that for decades that studies have shown that African-Americans are more likely to be diagnosed, misdiagnosed with schizophrenia than any other ethnic group. I didn't know that. And there is no, um, they've done research, but there are no specific reasons um, that this, that they can really explain this phenomenon. But part of um, some of the research that I've done and just looking into this is like, for example, um, there there can be like this um, general, like a pluralism around like cultures of people different backgrounds. So like, for example, a West Indian black person is ethnically and culturally different from an African-American, but they may be treated within the same um, prejudice attitudes by people who are assessing them that are Caucasian, for example. So mm. a Caucasian person is gonna see basically two black people, whether they're African-American, just African, South African, Afro-Latino or West Indian, like they might just pluralize it and say, oh, this person is Black. Right. They might might even just say they're all African-American, to be honest with you. Um, Honestly. But but within that system, it does not take into account every person's experience and every person's culture. And without taking into effect their culture, you can't really um, appropriately assess what is a behavioral or mental health norm for them. And this kind of leads to a huge thing, <laughs> which I would say is religion. Mm-hmm. Come on so, in the road. So, I, honestly, I feel like throughout this podcast, um, between these two episodes, religion will probably be sprinkled in a lot of things that we talk about. Um, yeah. But based off of my experience, if you know, if you have someone who is a devout Christian older person who you know who talks about like speaking to God and God talking to them and God using them without taking their culture into account that might present a schizophrenia that might present us you know auditory hallucinations my girl you got hallucinations and delusions ain't nobody talking to you that may very much present as something like that but I think that you know so I'm not saying that's why people are grossly being misdiagnosed with schizophrenia but I'm like oh having that frame of reference is different and I've seen that even with being able to work with people you know my fellow people of understanding like oh 
when she's talking like that, she's not saying it in a way that is a hallucination or something. The way she's saying it is very different than another person saying it. And it's, right. it's really hard to it's really hard to explain, but I think it might just be coming from that background. It's easier to understand of like, oh, I grew up with the church. So I understand people speaking in tongues and saying God told them this and talking to God and things like that. And that's like a culturally norm that that would not be something outside of our cultural context would not be seen as um, something that's a, a distinct mental health um, system. And I think that with cultural competency, it's something that you can teach, it's something that you can talk about, but it's very different of having that um, lived in experience that I think a lot of people don't have. And I think, you know, when it comes to diagnosing, even like behavioral issues with um, certain kids, I, I definitely would not be surprised if younger boys, African-American boys are, I always are diagnosed with ADHD. Yeah, and that is a I'm true statistic. Yeah, that like this, they're they're never they're often not diagnosed with like depressive disorders or things like that. And I think that kind of goes back to the the issue of oh, like in the DSM, it says like depression, as we've talked about before, is not necessarily just sitting around sad. It can also be irritability. But for some reason, when you know young African American men or even older, you know, present as irritable nobody ever automatically thinks depression. They go to another direction. And I think that is kind of why so many people are afraid of um, going through mental health and, and having that, what they say, a label, of having that label follow them around because it is very hard to, because uh, I think it, it's very hard to break out of that mode of what people expect from you. Right. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because, um, African-American boys, especially in primary school, are way more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD um, when you compare them to their other counterparts and their other peers. And it's just like what you said, they're more like, they might be really supposed to be diagnosed with depression or mm -hmm. um, like there might, they might, maybe they're supposed to be diagnosed with anxiety and instead you slap or even, like a, or even like a learning disorder like or even a learning disorder oh, um, might be dyslexia might be that they're on the spectrum like you just don't know but most of the time the label of ADHD is slapped upon them very just like just easy like yeah it, and it, it and it just becomes something that I think um people you know it, it becomes like a generalized system where it, it, it comes across like oh if you do if you do this one or two thing baby got to be ADHD and it's like not not everything no doesn't work like that Mr. Papa's just really needs a hug and really just needs a little bit of TLC he ain't got ADHD though you're, yeah but I think if you're doing if you're trying to be culturally competent and trying to make sure that whoever you're diagnosing is appropriate I think to me, if you, if, and that's not to say like, just because you come from the same cultural background, you automatically would be able to relate. Right. Um, I definitely think it, there should be more um, attentiveness to let me make sure before I give you this diagnosis, I may need to do maybe two or three assessments with you to really make sure I have a better understanding of what your culture looks like. Mm -hmm. um, what environment looks like before I give you this diagnosis because, because of the ramifications that come with it. And it may not be a situation where, and then I think that, you know, taking that into concern, if you, if you come from a culture where things are just a certain way in the house, like, oh, their behavior may really be in line with what's going on in the house. So is that a true, so is this diagnosis a true reflection of 
who they are intrinsically or is it the culture that they were raised in right right and so that that's one that's a you know a big thing that I think follows um, a lot of people that we work with and that kind of um, contributes to the stigma associated with um, black people in mental health mm. god I'm glad you brought up black people I'm just <laughs> <laughs> Since you talk about black people, I'ma talk about white people. Um, and when I talk about white people, I'm talking about the whiteness as a foundation to mental health care. Um, like you stated with cultural competency, we got it from this book that many of us revere, like in the therapy world, we kind of use like the DSM as our not to say it's like our Bible, but it's like what you go to when it's like, what's going on? I need, I need some type of source. I need a definition. I need some information, right? And in the counseling world, we go to that. This book was published in 1952. Hmm. Now, if we think about what the fuck was actually happening in 1952, you can be very clear that like integration was, was it really wasn't a thing. Okay, so when we the when the DSM was actually and this wasn't even this when the DSM was published. Right. So it was created before that. Um, So when it was actually published, black people were not even in. Like the the creators minds of like, oh, yeah, this is like I'm, I'm thinking about black people and Hispanic people and like when I'm actually making this book. No, this man was only thinking about white people right so he was only tailoring to white people and the baseline and the normalcy of what dsm was was created on what white people and Mm -hmm. what they how they live and their behaviors and their functions as a person right so let's just start there the dsm does not account for the cultural factors like we just talked about. It doesn't account for the cultural factors that influence like symptomatology and the diagnoses that like speak to cultural issues such as like racial discrimination or even oppression, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And even people of color, like we don't always have the same presentation for a mental disorder as it has been represented like in the manual, which we just talked about too. And that can like lead to misdiagnosis like we just talked about, like specifically with schizophrenia. You might have an older black lady or even not even an older black lady that comes to you and she's like, God came to me in a dream and he told me that this is what's gonna happen. And listen, have you ever had your mama be like, now mama wouldn't have said this. Something, sometimes that should be true. She'd be like, girl, I had a dream about fish last night. Now what mm. that mean? Mm. This Some, was somebody pregnant. Somebody pregnant, right? Mm. Like I had a dream about fish last night. Somebody pregnant. Like, oh, I had a dream about a snake. That means some, something is up. Some, some, something's about to get you. Like, oh, my left palm is itching. That means I'm about to get money. Now to me, that makes sense. But if I told this to some like a counselor who is white and I'm talking to them, they might be like, this bitch is crazy. Cause what the hell are you talking about? This doesn't make any sense to me, girl, you're schizophrenic. So let's go ahead and put that label on you. And I'm like, actually, no, like I'm actually just fine. This is, this is a part of our culture, but it leads us to be misdiagnosed. 
And then the further mental health struggles and biased views of people of color who might be living with these with these disorders, it also leads to that too. Um, also, we talked about this too. There is such a lack of research done on Black people. Like, I'm doing, personally speaking, I'm doing a dissertation right now and it is solely about niggas, right? <laughs> and one of the things about it being solely on niggas, which is why it's kind of making my dissertation process a little bit more difficult, is that there's no research for like me to pull from. Now, I don't know, I kind of know why that is as a black person. You know, you don't want people knowing your business. People ask you too many damn questions. It's like, what the hell you need to know for? Why are you researching me? We haven't had a lot of good experiences with research. You know, mm -hmm. as a black people, we, we, I mean, usually when, when somebody tries to research us, they're not really doing it to help us or to like benefit us based upon history. It's usually to hurt us or to harm us. But when we talk about mental health in particular, we need more research done on Black people so that we can know, like, what exactly to do with Black, like, with our population. What are the actual disparity, disparities that are going on? Why are we having all this, mis, like, this misdiagnosis, right? Um, also, when we talk about whiteness as a foundation to mental health care, like I said before, like, in America, probably not even in America, but just globally, like the white identity is the implicit standard of normalcy. So that poses problems for us. It's like how we are supposed to behave and how we are supposed to act and how we're supposed to talk and how we're supposed to function is based upon a person that is white and is nothing like us. That is a problem, especially in mental health care. Now, I don't know if you guys know any of this, this is a flat fact. This is a little black history. I hate to say black history because this is actually kind of frightening. Um, but in the mid 19th century, there was a US physician, a bald head, low down, dirty monkey ass physician with a fucking wig on. And his name was Samuel Cartwright, right? Mm -hmm. And in the 19th century, he proposed that black slaves attempted to escape their captivity and like run off their plantations and leave their master and like do all these runaways because of a mental illness that he termed as drapetomania. So that just gives context on how we started out we really didn't start out good with, with mental health care when we actually think about it, right? Like we came over here, I'm not even trying to get real, 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 but we came over here, transatlantic slaves, right? We came over here to this country as slaves, we were enslaved. Then we tried to run away, right? We're trying to leave from captivity because we over this shit. Ain't nobody got time for this shit. This shit is sick. This shit is horrid. And when we try to run away, we are told that we have a mental illness for trying to actually leave our captor. Mm -hmm. Samuel Cartwright, I hope you never see the, the gates of heaven, you low down <laughs> dirty bastard. 
Daniel, I hope you don't never see Daniel Cartwright is in the hottest place in hell. You hear me? He is the there. hottest. There's a special place in hell for a bitch like him. You hear me? Oh, Jesus. Special place. Mm-mm-mm. Daniel Cartwright couldn't see the pearly gates in his dreams. You hear me? You, you, you couldn't even touch Jesus' <laughs> garment if you wanted to. You back up off of him. That's Samuel Cartwright. That's a low down, dirty monkey. Well, we gone. Ain't it? Ain't it? Yeah. So basically, like mental health care is founded on whiteness. And if we are dealing with a system that is founded on whiteness, it's going to be very, it's going to sometimes be difficult to get a population to actually subscribe um to the process of mental health when we feel like and we not even feel like when we know that it wasn't even created for us if that right. makes sense yeah oh i i know damn slave trade was gonna come up in here at some point it's uh it's gonna it, come up the fact that it has to come up is just so sad like it's just well, that's a lovely segue into my next topic, the lack of diversity um, in, <laughs> within the mental health care system. Yeah. So often, you know, research shows that Black people prefer to talk to someone who looks like them and will better understand their experience. But unfortunately, and this was um, conducted in 2014, um, only around 2% of the American Psychological Association members and associates identified as Black. Mm. So this not only makes it harder to find a therapist, but it also means like when you do have one, their caseloads fill up pretty quickly because right. that becomes the priority. Um, the lack of representation can make it harder for seeking those counselors to find um, the help what they need. And so with, with any program, I would hope that recruitment and retention of Black therapists and training programs is key just because of um, the need for the population. And I think that so much of what we've learned is you know just the numbers are just uh, staggering so like um, yeah so two percent of the estimated forty-one thousand psychiatrists in the u.s are black and four percent of psychologists are black um on college campuses close to 61 percent of counseling center staff are white 13 percent are black mm. um this is um this is just across the board in the mental health system. And I think what happens is you may find certain programs or certain organizations that are predominantly black and you might just think, oh, this, they're everywhere. And it's like, no, it's, it's very, no. very specific um, regions. And I think that this plays a part. And you know, like Jessica, how many times have you just had a client you've never met before who happens to just be black, walk in, see you, and you can just see them like get, relaxes like out the gate you haven't even said i mean ain't even said nothing it's nothing. just the body language and they just oh i have literally i can't tell you how many times who like this literally like either when i was doing in-person therapy or um even virtually it's like you can hear a sigh of relief when they see you it's just like right oh my god like who yes and you know i think it's also because i I don't really, I mean, Jessica is not very much a black name. You know, you see the name Jessica and it's like, this bitch about to be white. And then it's like, I pop up and they're like, Jessica? And I'm like, yes. And they're like, mm-hmm. yeah. we, might we might get somewhere today. And I'm like, settle in, sis. Yeah, take a seat. What's up? 
And I think that it's, it's just such a huge dynamic. And I feel like with, and I think it's across the board with, with either kids or with, a, I, I mean, I feel like it plays a big part when you're working with young kids. I feel like it plays a huge part when you're working with older adults. Like they just have this natural, like, uh, it's almost like I don't have to be as defensive. I don't have to be as mindful of what I'm saying in the sense of, let, and, and I would say like, there have been clients that I've had who pretty much said like, I'm going to tell you this, only because I feel like you're not gonna judge me. Cause mm-hmm. why you cause you black. And I feel like you gonna you gonna tell me, but you're not gonna judge me and look at me almost like look down on me about something that I'm gonna tell you. And that's not to say white therapists are doing that or any other way. So my oh, this is just the experience that a lot of black people who have have had who I've had clients who have been in therapy for years and they would tell me things. I'm like, so you know how I was this address I was like, I've never told anybody this. And I'm just like, well, why you've been there? And it was like, oh, there was just certain parts of things that I could not fully be myself because of the perceived um, judgment that I was going to have coming for them that I could not necessarily truly be my authentic self without feeling like I would be judged on like my cultural beliefs or the things that I said, like, you know, somebody that, or even somebody, we don't have to explain what everything means. Like, oh, if you, you know, if if a younger client I have who uses slang and I have to say, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? Um, it's just a the relatability factor. Right. The huge, a huge component of it that it's like, well, if I, you know, speak a certain way, if I have if I use just a certain level of slang, and if every other word you don't know what it means and I have to explain it, it kind of takes time away from moving forward. Right. Now it's not even therapy anymore. Now I'm teaching you. Yeah, and it's like, and I know that there is like that that dynamic of wanting to be curious and learning more. I get that, but it's also like, if I'm just trying to get through this story because it's it's just a lot, I don't want to have to take time out to explain everything because I'm never going to get to the point of just being able to fully get through it. And so I think that plays a part in um things like that. And I think you know it can it, it can play a part in just modeling behavior and role modeling. Like, and it's just like, oh, I see you as a black therapist, so you know, lets me know you know, things can be different. I can have a different dynamic or I can, you know, say certain things and not feel that certain way. But, you know, or even casually of just saying, like, I watched this show called Power and it's like, oh, I know what show you talk about. And you know what I'm saying? And that that's a part of things, just having that relatability that I think a lot of times so many clients that I've had who have struggled with that and have went through the therapeutic process and just felt like I wanted to open up to this person. I tried and it was almost like they were overwhelmed with stuff that I was going through, especially if it's race related. If you're trying to have a conversation with a white person about issues that you have with white people, even if you get comfortable, you can kind of see that the other person that you're speaking to might be uncomfortable. But if mm-hmm. it's a very, if, if, if it's something that is very pressing to you and you're not comfortable sharing it with your therapist because of how they may react to it, you're not necessarily getting the best care. And I think that kind of contributes to so many of the dynamics of why people don't necessarily seek out the care they need to because they don't have enough people that looks like them and yeah. you know, other situations and populations that's not always um the case but I think that's a huge factor that plays into the stigma that um you know perpetuates within the black mental health system yeah and I think I've I've had um one one client in particular that came to me and was just kind of like like I don't have to present perfect in front of you so mm-hmm. when they did have a white therapist, they felt like they had to present themselves in a certain way that was acceptable to the person that they were talking to. 
And we already know in therapy that doesn't really work that well because that's when you're supposed to be the most transparent and you're supposed to be the most vulnerable and you're like just able to just like, this is me, like take it or leave it. I ain't got no time for you to be judging me, right? Um, And the students that I work with in particular now as a therapist in school, I work in a school that is, it's a predominantly white school. We, we, really don't have any black kids it's like a sprinkle here and there um and I have like I really call her like my surrogate child so like the first time I met her her teacher actually sent her to me right Mm because she had been going through a time and like my door was closed but she knocked on my door and I opened the door she's like I'm looking for Miss Thompson I'm like I'm her and she was like you're Miss Thompson I'm like yeah girl and she's like oh my God, I thought you were going to be white. And I'm like, girl, no, I'm not white. But we've gotten this relationship and we've gotten this rapport. But one of the things that she also said to me was like, I like don't have to, I can talk like I'm at home with you, which is very important. Like she doesn't have to code switch. You know what I'm saying? Like she doesn't actually have to change the way that she talks when she's in a safe space to talk to me because she knows like, girl, we speak the same language. Like it ain't, it ain't really a thing up in here. Like, girl, speak how you want to talk. Um, but yeah, having a culturally competent counselor that I feel like is relatable to you and that you don't have to explain to all the time is really important. Even me as a therapist who has a therapist, like if I tell my therapist, like, girl, I'm feeling like Jocelyn Hernandez today. I want her to be like, oh, bitch, you feel like you're on top of the world. You feel like you're the baddest bitch, huh? You know, like that's that's the type of feel that I want. I don't know if a white therapist could that could give that to you as a black person. They might. You never know. But yeah. And I I think one of the biggest things that, you know, from my experience, that you can be the best, most culturally competent therapist in the world. You can do all the research and do all the work. But there are going to be some people who like, I just don't feel that comfortable with you. It's Mm -hmm. nothing It's nothing that you haven't done because I understand that there is like things that you can learn and you can teach and you can improve. And I totally understand that. But I also think there is going to always be a subset of people who feel like it it don't matter what you do, how you present and how you say it. I'm always going to have this uncomfortability of feeling like I you'll you'll never really truly be able to relate to my experience in order to have an effective therapeutic relationship. And I, you know, I'm not to minimizing my but I think like oh it's like I you know and I understand like oh like I'm not a woman and so it doesn't matter how great of a therapist that I am there's always going to be a woman who feels like there's nothing wrong with you there's nothing you've done but I, I'm not nothing you do is going to make me comfortable enough to go to places that I need you to go to and I think right. that line with some what happens with um clients who are black and I think and it kind of goes back to things like the fear of diagnosis and the fear of what you're going to say, because mm-hmm. like, oh, if I tell, you know, if I tell these white people, I, I did this last night, or I did this, they're going to have these people at my house. They're going to have these people at my door. Yeah. And it's versus, you know, if, but I, I feel like from my experience, when it happens with, um, when I work with clients within the population, it, it's not, it doesn't come across as personal. It doesn't right. come as like um, judgmental. It's kind of like, Hey, listen, sis, I got to call these people because you can't be out here doing this. And it's just a, a very different relatable way. And it's like, I'm not doing this because I have anything against you. I'm not judging you. This is about the book. And I feel like it, it comes across differently 
in those situations because I feel like it's more, it becomes more accepted. It's like, oh, I have a better, a better feeling that you as a another person who have this this shared experience that if you're doing something, telling me something, it's it's truly for right. It's truly from a from a neutral standpoint versus somebody else may have an agenda, and it doesn't matter whether that agenda is real or imagined. As long as that person feels that that's there, that's always going to be a boundary or a barrier that's going to you know it's a treatment. Right. Also, with cultural competency, when we talk about it, I think, um, and not this isn't even specifically for Black people, but I think with Black people, especially when we go to mental health services, because there's such a stigma around it. We get with one therapist, the therapist don't work out and it's like, this shit ain't it, right? And then it's like, we stop at the, it's like, I'm not going that shit no more. Like, one and done. They, they, I'm one and done. Like, they don't understand me. This shit was whack. Like, they ain't helped me at all. They don't understand what I'm saying. And then we have this stigma around it. Like, all therapists are going to be like that. Like, I'm not going to be able to find the person that is like me. Like you said, like one and done. And when I talk to, like my clients that come in, I always tell them like, hey, we can try that. I might, even though I'm a black woman and you're a black woman, like I might not be the therapist for you, but just because I'm not, that doesn't mean you stop here. I always compare it to like trying on shoes, if that makes sense. Like finding a therapist is just like trying on shoes. Like I might head my ass to the mall. I might try on a shoe. And it's like, I, I try to get a seven and a half of this specific shoe, but it's like this seven and a half don't fit. It's a little bit too small. Right. So then I move up to an eight and it's like, damn, the eight, eight don't really fit that good either, but I really want this damn shoe. So I'm like, do y'all have an eight and a half? And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. The eight and a half is perfect. Like therapy is the same way just because this shoe feels a little tight or it's a little loose. That don't mean that your ass walk around barefoot. You still need to find a damn shoe to put on your feet. Like, so I think we do have that. We do sometimes, like you said, like we have a one done attitude, like this shit ain't work. All right. I'm off that. I'm not doing that again. That was like, that wasn't good. That wasn't a good experience for me, which I think you're going to talk about later. Oh, I'm going to definitely spin a block on that one. Spin a block. But before we spin a block, I'm going to go into emotional hesitation, which is kind of what we just talked about. We, we delved into it a little bit. So when we talk about emotional hesitation, hesitation, it's a, a literally the feeling and the emotion of like, mm, I don't really know if I kind of want to do this. This really does not like feel, I, I, I don't know. Like you're just hesitant about it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said before, this like hesitancy can oftentimes be attached to the negative stigma that we have attached to therapy. Now, some of the negative st- stigmas that I had attached to therapy before I like became a therapist and like really knew what counseling was like this is younger. I had the stigma that like, I really hate using this word. I don't use this. I don't really use this word anymore unless I be talking about people who really crazy, but like that shit for crazy people. You know what I'm talking about? Like what are the usually negative stigmas that you have attached to therapy, that you did have attached to therapy? Me? Yeah. Oh, negative stigma. Um, Let me think. When I would say, I don't know. I, I felt like, oh, Lord, I would even say when I was in grad, undergrad school, we had to do assessments on one another mm. um, as part of like our intake process. And I remember 
being like, oh, I really don't want to do this because these people might think I'm crazy. These people really don't think like something wrong with me. I'm getting out the program. Like, yeah. I really so I would say, so like, for example, I would say like, growing, listen, I'm from, listen, I'm from, I'm from the, I'm from the streets. Okay. From the street. Uh, so like, I was very like, we would go outside, we would do things. I was, I wouldn't say I was accident prone, but I mean, I don't been to, I don't broke some bones. I don't got some bruises. I don't been outside playing with the other kids and random stuff happened. I had to go to the emergency room. So like, that was just a normal part of my childhood. Like it was just, you'd be outside, something random happened. It wasn't anything. So I remember with meeting with the therapist, with, when I was doing an intake and we were getting observed by somebody based off my history and like how many times I went to emergency room and it wasn't like every month it was maybe not even every year but it's like how, I'm like oh I've broken my ankle I've broken my arm I got stitches one time I got in a bike accident one time so I'm I'm thinking you know six times throughout my whole childhood is not the worst thing in the world basically based off what I told them they would have diagnosed me with ADHD baby and I'm sitting there like no they was like well why wouldn't I was just like I said like literally it wasn't like I said I, I said I hated going outside I was not like extremely active I said but I would do stuff just as part of our culture with just kids in the neighborhood so getting bumps and bruises while you outside hopping fences and doing other stuff was just was just a part of it I said but to for me to think about especially like the clients that I know now who struggle with ADHD I'm like oh I, I never had any issues with my attention I was never hyperactive like none of those things have ever been my experience what was like oh but because I was accident prone and I went to emergency a few times y'all would have thought I had ADHD and so that kind of led me to feel like oh well if that is what y'all think just based off of that I really don't want to tell you about these other dynamics in my home and even you know the some of the cultural things that my family does or, or being the fact that I've been raised by predominantly um single women the mentality they have and how they approach issues and how they approach something I was like oh that's the culture that I'm from and if you're gonna judge me or make me feel like that's a negative this is not gonna work because I'm let you know like oh no that's how we do things I'm not apologize for it and I don't it, it's not an issue for me and I never want it to be in a dynamic where somebody is gonna try to make me feel like something is an issue that I don't believe is an issue so that was kind of like some of my hesitancy with um the mental health system as a whole right like child they would have definitely diagnosed your ass for ADHD but it wasn't and it was like I would understand if that was like once a month even like a four three four times I was like oh like I can remember all the things it's like no it might have been once every other year if I'm just outside playing every day during the summertime it's like the chances of something random happening is you know it's nothing I felt like that was wasn't that ridiculous but I guess comparing it to what usually happens in other areas with other populations and it would look like that but that wasn't my experience at all yeah and when I was younger I also thought that therapy was only for rich white people mm-hmm. like that's what I just saw not even anybody nobody even told me I think that's just what I saw portrayed like on television and in sitcoms it's like oh rich white people go to therapy because like rich white people can afford therapy and like therapy really isn't for black people right and I also thought like oh therapy is only for like people who are crazy like people who are crazy like they have lost their marbles you know because I think the dynamic has always been presented rich white people go to therapy um poor bad people go to church or go to Jesus Chat, you know what here you go with religion I'm just saying I'm just that and that, that so I think that has been such a huge thing throughout all of this has always been 
if you need to talk to somebody, go talk to God. Gotta fix it. Gotta gotta address it. Don't don't share that with nobody. And then I was also raised in very much a what happens at home stays at home. We gonna so, get to that. Now you trying to take over my segment. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm Go ahead. Okay, no, no. I'm glad you said that. Okay, so we also have emotional hesitation because, like I said before, I don't know. In my black household, I was always told like, "What happens in this house stays in this house." Don't be going telling nobody what the hell be happening in here. And I think it's like the fear that you that we've talked about before, like. CPS might be knocking at your damn door because you decided that you told your mama that you was that you decided to tell your teacher that your mama would spank you last night. You know, get you. The people gonna come pick your ass. The up. people gonna pick your ass up, and and you gonna be in foster care. You know, so it's kind of like we have been trained to think that we're supposed to suppress our feelings and we're not supposed to tell anybody anything because if we do tell somebody something, it is going to lead to a consequence that we are not going to be able to bear right um mm-hmm. and like i said it comes from a tradition we're going back to slavery i see so you always gonna take it back church i'm always telling you about slavery we come from a tradition and i don't want to say tradition because that sounds horrible we come from a history of oppression right um and because of this oppression it's always created feelings of like anxiety and deep sadness like if we think about slavery and we think about how we were treated women and and fathers were literally ripped away from their children ripped away sold to somebody else right and that has stuck with us over time and we have kept that with us because it's like do not do not say shit about what goes on here because they are going to rip you away from me right um and learning how to talk about your feelings and learning how to open up about your feelings it it is hard okay it is a very daunting task to take on I don't know even how I got to the point where I have been able to express my emotions like just freely I don't even know how I got here but somehow I got here Um, But I think it's also because I have, I have been okay with being comfortable with being uncomfortable with expressing my emotions, if that makes sense, right? Right. Because when you do it, it's like the first time I, I, I remember the first time I did it and it was so cringy. It literally made my skin crawl I was just like this is not what I'm supposed to be doing it literally feels foreign coming out of my mouth and doing it but I'm going to actually do it and then once you get in the practice of doing something that you haven't done before it becomes like a normal thing it doesn't feel as uncomfortable as it did the first time right um and then when we talk about emotional hesitation too um me as a black woman, we child, I'm gonna link it back to damn slavery again. It's okay. Happy Black History Month. Um, I hate slavery. I hate slavery. <laughs> I hate slavery. I hate slavery. Black women have always had to have a sense of hyper independence, right? Um, 
And the sense of hyper-independence is because, once again, if you track it what, all the way down to our ancestry, ancestry of when we were brought over here to America, when we put on plantations, husband and wives were also ripped away from each other, right? So the woman was the one that was like doing the child rearing and she was left alone and she had to raise a family and the husband was ripped away to make more children so that the slave master could have more slaves, right? As sickening as that sounds. So Black women have, since since we've been over here in damn America, we haven't had any choice but to be super independent. I don't know, child, listen, if you listen to the radio, if you've ever been around Black women, you know it is embedded in us to be like, I don't need no nigga. I can do it by I myself. I don't need I, a man for shit. I don't need a man for shit. I don't need nobody. I can do this shit by myself. I'm a boss. I can do this on my own, blah, blah, this, blah, blah, that. And we think it is a good thing. We think it's a good thing. But when we actually think about it, that sense of hyper-independence is a horrible, horrible, horrible character trait to have because that means that you have a sense that you cannot trust and depend on anybody. And that means that you don't have a community around you, right? That you can lean on and that you can trust on. And that can be very, very dangerous because it can create a sense of you're alone and you have nobody else for support. And even if you have all these people around you, right? And then it can create more feelings of anxiety and it can feel more, create more feelings of depression, right? So like, Sometimes we think, oh, yeah, being an independent bad bitch, I can do this shit on my own. Like, that's cute. Bitch, I don't want to be an independent bad bitch no more. I still want to be a bad bitch, but somebody help me. Okay? Mm -hmm. Like, everybody needs help. For Black men, specific, I mean, I'm not a Black man, but I know Black men. I love Black men. I have Black men in my life. Um, Black men have been taught not to let people see them suffering, Right? They hide their emotions. They internalize their emotions. They feel like if they if they show the world that they are hurting and that they are sad and that they're frustrated and they're overwhelmed and they're riddled with anxiety, then that that means that they're weak, right? And that that means that they can't take a care of their business. And that is totally not true. But having all those traits and having that type of thought, that that thinking it makes you emotionally hesitant to go to somebody else who is a complete stranger. You don't know this man or woman from a can of paint and you knock on their door and be like, yeah, I'm your five o'clock. I'm about to sit down and bear my soul to you. Like, um, that's, that's, that's kind of uncomfortable, um, to do, especially when we've been taught for the longest of time that you're supposed to keep your feelings, um, to yourself, and we really have not been taught how to actually talk about our feelings um, in a very functional and also healthy way. Mm. Mm. And I want to say again, I hate damn slavery. Who oh, I hate slavery? I, I, I hate I, I, I hate slavery. Good. I gotta drink it. I got wine, but I gotta drink a bit. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, 
Okay, then we'll wrap it up then. Okay, get lit. All right. Not so, get lit. Get lit. So lastly, um, I wanted to speak about just some negative experiences that some people have experienced with um dealing with mental health. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like there's a Twitter thread out there somewhere with this. I don't even want to dive into that. Don't do that. There wasn't. So um, it is often common that Black people have seen a counselor in the past, either voluntarily or involuntarily and that experience was not great um this could be to the this can be due to a number of factors um but it could be due to the therapist's lack of cultural awareness um or other competence factors but um these negative experiences can dissuade black people from finding a new counselor and continuing the healing process um and i think so many times it's such a struggle for people of color to even have the courage and to get up to say, okay, I'm going to go to a therapist. There are so many small things that happen for them to finally get to that place. And, you know, with that system, what happens is they get to that place and they find like, okay, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to try this. So basically whoever they meet, that first therapist, it should, the first intake counselor, a lot is riding on them because it's going to really shape how they view therapy from that point on. And if that experience is negative, or if they feel judged, I think that that's what happens is they generalize like, oh, this is all therapists. This is what's happening here. And it took me so much to get to this point just to get here and feel like I was judged or was not acknowledged that that kind of has shaped my whole experience with Mm -hmm. mental health. And so, and I think, you know, just some child, there's some stuff that some of my clients have told me they previous therapists had said that would make your jaw drop like they they said that to you or they told you that but I think that has been such um a stigma or such an issue with people reaching out to get um that additional help because of of, you know of of the, the amount of courage it can take and I think especially if you're going out of your comfort zone maybe to meet with a white therapist because that's what's available and you're finding the courage to get there and if that white therapist does not really take the time to to hear you out, to acknowledge you, shit, to even pronounce your name correctly. Things like that can be a huge deal breaker. Um, Turn off. I don't I ain't, I'm not coming over here no more. I will never <laughs> come back to this shit again. Ever again. Will, I'm ready to get the I fuck will, ASAP. I will never darken these hallways or doorways again in my life. And I think that that is such a huge part of it because you know the other kind of parts like it might be like oh I didn't like if if you maybe are a white person and you meet a white therapist I don't like this one pretty sure there's a bunch of other ones in here I have options but if I you know if I'm a black person I'm and I go to this one white therapist to try to get it I'm like it was hard enough for me to talk to you if you ain't acting right baby this I, I would almost rather give up and then kind of revert back to you know what it is our experience is um the Lord to fix it will Jesus, we gonna pray about it. Oh no, you know what? My the worst one, the one I hate the most. Which one? He don't put more on you than you can handle, baby. Baby, I am not handling this. I'm not. He gets his. He gets his toughest battle to his strongest soldiers. I'm weak. I'm a weak soldier. I didn't know like that. So, but those kind of things come up because we, it, I think it just goes back to that. You need to figure it out. You should be able to figure it out. If, if you can't figure it out, it's not a problem with everybody else. So it's not a problem to help you. It's like, well, you should be able to. And I think that kind of creates that negative dynamic. And I, you know, and I think there's just even 
when we talk about as, as far as when it comes to culture, even stuff that, you know, I've done in-home therapy. So going into people's houses is a whole different dynamic to seeing people like in a traditional setting. But just how you disrespect, like going into how people houses. I listen, parking in somebody's parking spot was like the worst thing in the world. It's like, but it was just like, but like small things like that to anybody else and anything else would be different. But with within our community, it's like certain things like that hold more weight than it would in other spaces. And shit, walking in somebody's house and not speaking to everybody is like something that, as far as our culture, is going to be way bigger than it might be in other cultures and I think but those are like the little things that I think can create a negative experience from therapy or if you just feel like you went to a therapist and they said something that was just grossly disproportionate to what you said or you felt like judged or persecuted anyway that shapes your 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 frame for therapy and I think that people will go a long time without therapy and I also think that a big thing that I do see is people being forced into therapy specifically at younger ages um, not that I don't think it can help or can be successful, but I, there are a lot of people who I've met who are older, like, yeah, the, everybody wanted this for me when I was younger. I was not in a place to do it. It would have right. been doing it for, for all the wrong reasons. And I was not ready that when they got older and did it on their own, the result and the outcomes were, were much more beneficial and much, much better. But it came from a place of, I did it when I was ready, not because I was forced to, not because the school said I had ADHD and I have to do this. It wasn't because of all these other things. And it was because of, you know, the experience that I needed to have. And I think that oftentimes we don't necessarily get that same opportunity. It's almost like you being bad, so you got to go here. And it it sets up a dynamic. And, you know, even if, or I think, especially with younger kids, if people, if they feel like they're coming, they're coming here to get fixed. Mm -hmm. Sure. You're here because something wrong. You need to go to therapy and get fixed. And it, it can kind of come across as very judgmental if I know all this stuff about you before you ever walk in the door. Like, that's a horrible feeling to walk into a room and feel like everybody has had conversations about you before you were even there. How do you, how, who would feel want to feel comfortable opening up in that kind of space? Who would want to feel trusted in that space and feeling like, I walked in here and my name was in rooms that I had never even walked into. And I think that those things kind of contribute to the negative experiences that people have with mental health. Um, that really shape things or or you know or feel disrespected and they kind of will shy away from it and not seek it out oh jesus 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 mm, mm, mm. Mm. well i think we covered all of our topics <laughs> i just <laughs> oh oh that's like that, that meme of that lady you sing to me Send to me. That's how I feel like right now. Oh, oh. <sighs> it's like love, these conversations are always super tough to have because it's like it's nothing very much like lighthearted and joyous about it, but they need to be had because if we don't have them, how the fuck we gonna progress? You know? Yeah, and I think it, it's it's so interesting because I think that's why. I can't say that the great thing has been even with the podcast and just people on therapists, like I will have people reach out to me at the most random of times who just say, hey, blah, blah, blah. And I always am mindful of, you know what, if, if I can't, I said it probably took them a long time to get to this place to even reach out. So I'm always trying to be um, very proactive and very supportive um, in that way, because I'm like, oh, based off what I say to you and how I respond to you reaching out, this may shape your whole narrative about therapy moving forward. And I don't, I would never, Absolutely. I would never want somebody to be like, I went to try to talk to 
Rollins, and he just did not have the time. And I just said, "Okay, I'm done. I'm never trying to." <laughs> That's not funny, but it's really dead ass though, because <laughs> because you know it was like, "Oh, I tried to talk to JT. That bitch ain't answer me back." <laughs> That's not funny, but it's like I swear, y'all, like you know. I don't want, I'm going to always answer y'all back when it comes to mental health things, because as the first person that you might talk to, I don't want you to write it off and be like, damn, I'm really asking for help. And this person is like, girl, I don't know, figure shit the hell out yourself. You know what I'm saying? Or like, mm-hmm. they're really not paying me any attention. So, um, yeah, I get that. We need help. We do. We, we do. We definitely need help. Speaking of help. It really don't. I'm just saying, speaking of help, but we about to go into our Trappers Digest um, of the week. Um, you, you okay if I start? I'll go ahead and get, get into it. Okay, I am going to do, because it is Black History Month and week, this is for the niggas, the niggas only. Uh, I am starting with Kendrick Lamar. <sighs> All right. From... <laughs> The amazing album of To Pimp a Butterfly. Now, if you have not heard that album, I don't know what the hell you have I, Listen, I, because mine is also from Spin, but it's a fucking fun. It, I can't go on about it enough. Like, it's fucking amazing. I'm ready for him. I don't know what that man is doing. All the best to Kendrick Lamar, but I really want him to, to start pushing that pen and get in that studio and give me another album. Okay. I hope mm. he's doing well, though. Um... So we're going to start with the first verse and first verse only. It says, uh, and when I wake up, I recognize you're looking at me for the pay cut. Mm. But homicide be looking at you from the face down. What Mac 11 even boom with the bass down. Scheming. And let me tell you about my life. Painkillers only put me in the twilight. Where pretty, where pretty pussy and Benjamin is the highlight. Now tell my mama I love her, but this is what I like. Lord knows. 20 of them in my Chevy. Tell them all to come and get me. Reaping everything I sow. So my karma coming heavy. No preliminary hearings on my record. I'm a motherfucking gangster in silence for the record. Tell the world I know it's too late. Boys and girls, I think I've gone cray. Drown inside my vices all day. Won't you please believe me when I say? And then he goes into the chorus. It's like, well, you know, we've been herping down before. But, you know, if you ain't heard, you need to listen to that song. Um, but when I actually listen to the to the verse, it's like Kendrick knows that he is struggling with something, right? Mm. Whatever the case might be, he knows that he's struggling, but he's using things that he knows are not actually going to help him right like he's finding he's trying to find solace in like pussy and women he's trying to find solace in money even knowing that like society is really only using him for money this is a statistic a real statistic but you know that like did you know that african-americans like have the highest spending power in the country that doesn't surprise me yeah we only make up 13 percent of the country that that actually sounds like low key familiar, right? I think when we when we fuck with something, we, we fuck, fuck with it. Which is why when something is like something that we fuck with, like businesses are always willing to like prey on us to buy expensive shit and unnecessary items. Which is kind of like what Kendrick Lamar is talking about in this verse. So 
like he feels like he's finding only temporary bliss from like drugs and women and money and the temptations that keep on calling him even though he knows like I know I'm not doing this shit right but this is the only way that I know how I can handle it you know and he feels like he's disappointing his mother by using these vices but even though he knows that he's disappointing his mom he's like all right well karma is just gonna get me the way that karma gets me and like it's just basically has the idea of it's going to be the way that it's going to be. And he feels like there's, it's too late for him to change the cycle of his life. So then he's just going to have to rely on karma and eventually fate is going to catch up to him, which is what I feel like we as a community kind of feel not even kind of like how we feel like about mental health, right? It's just kind of like we, sometimes we have like, it is what it is attitude. Like this shit ain't going to get better. Like I've been suffering for years. I feel like I've been doing fine, even though you might've been doing fine. Like nigga, you might really have high functioning depression. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you're doing fine though. Like nigga, you need some damn help. You might have high functioning anxiety, you know, but you just feel like it is what it is. This is how it's going to be. There's nothing I can really change about it. Um, I know that I need to change. I know that what I'm doing is not healthy for me, but I just don't, I don't know another way of how I can fix myself. Um, so that's what I chose for my Trappist Digest of the week. If you have not listened to it, you need to go ahead and tap in. Her. King Kendrick. Kendrick is just, he just, he just gets it. He he just he just gets it. <laughs> he just, just fucking gets it. He just I do miss him because I feel like to put a but no damn was the last hour. damn. You what know I got that shit on vinyl. Oh, I need to get that. You know I we love a good vinyl. We love a vinyl over here. Love a good. We love a good vinyl. Perfect. I, so I actually also chose something from To Pimp a Butterfly because it's just the shiz. Um, and I actually chose complexion because I felt like, well, let's let's get into a little colorism. Let's just let's just sprinkle that on top of it. Um, but I really just wanted to talk about um this one section that I really, really was fucking with. Um, so I love myself. I no longer need Cupid enforcing my dark side like a George, like a young George Lucas. Light don't mean you smart, being dark don't mean you stupid. And frame of mind and buses ain't talking woo-ha. Need a paradox for the pair of daughters they tutor, like two ties, LL, you lose two times. If you don't see your beautiful in your complexion, it ain't complex to put it in context. Find the air beneath the kite, uh, that's the context. Come, God damn it, this, this nigga sweating. Yeah, baby, I'm conscious, <laughs> ain't no contest. If you like it, I love it, all your earth times be blessed. Ain't no stress, jigaboos and wannabe. I ain't talking jack, I ain't like B. Like the shit is just... Mm. the whole your shit Kendrick the whole um the whole black experience and I feel like um this is a whole nother thing but I definitely feel like um part of what's so important about black history month is just every black is different Mm. Um, it is not monolithic and I think that um this song specifically really kind of talks to that so you know I can only speak to the experience of a whatever color I am, like a medium black person. A butter pecan? Oh, yeah, like, you know, like a, you know, like a good butter pecan. So I can only speak from my experience, but I know 
my experience and my blackness is different than people with different shades of blackness. Um, and, you know, not to ever minimize or say, you know, somebody else's experience of blackness is, has to be the same thing as mine. Um, right. That, you know, within this process and kind of what we do is to even, you know, have, you know, those conversations can come up as far as, you know, people who can pass, you know, or people who um, have light skin privilege. Um, and then even, you know, the difference between um, dark skinned black men and dark skinned black women. There is there's a difference between those. There's and, a difference, chair. And how all those dynamics play into things like when, especially when it comes to mental health, when it comes to job opportunities and it it comes to advancement in certain areas and you know, even how you present your blackness and, and everything is is always something that we unfortunately have to be mindful of. Um, and I think it's just so important you know, to embrace whatever your Blackness is and whatever that looks like and that, you know, nobody's Blackness should be determined by, you know, whatever shade they happen to come out because they had no control over that. And it does not negate my Blackness because I'm no Blacker than you, you're no Blacker than me. And, you know, we can have a different cultural experience. Um, but I think that this kind of song just really talks about that. And I think just having, I think it's good to have those conversations and to even, you know, within our own culture specifically, and within our therapeutic settings to say like, oh, well, do you, you know, is that something that plays a part in a lot of things? Because I think that it plays a part with, and even with our family relationships, if you, if some, you have family members, we all different shades. So you will have some lighter family members, some darker ones, some in the middle, and that, you know, everybody's experience is going to be different based off of that. And I think it's just important to acknowledge it because I think it's a very uncomfortable conversation to have. It's something that we don't acknowledge a lot. Um, but I think it's important because it just plays a huge part. And we damn sure we talk about it during Black History Month. Like, that just, that just makes sense. It just makes sense. It just makes sense. Well, we want to leave you guys off on somewhat of a trappish note, somewhat of a nice jovial note, because um, I know this episode, it might be a little... It might heavy. be a little heavy. Heavy, heavy. heavy. <laughs> you got it so heavy, baby. baby. Right. So my trap song of the week is going to be Run It Up by Tyler, the creator. It is just like a feel good song. Honestly, like I play it in the morning on my way to school. And I also play it like when I'm leaving my parking lot of the school. Like it just it's just one of those songs that make you feel good about being black and make you feel good about just like achieving all your goals in life and just knowing like the sky ain't even the limit of what the fuck you can damn do so run it up by tyler creator get into it so my trap my trap song <laughs> is by huncho the god ah, yes and it is crazy story the remix featuring king von i don't know what I heard this song. You are such a bird, Rollis. I was like, yo, I listen, that is not the first time I've heard that, and that will not be the last. I'm a proud bird. I'm part a proud member of the bird gang. I am a bird in every sense of the word. I like the hood, this other hood, and this shit just da da It slaps me every time. King Von was spitting though. R.I.P. to King It is like it slaps. It it's a bop, and that just it just gets me hyped. Like I'm definitely like yeah. Sounds like I need to share that in case y'all don't know it. It's definitely like please get into Crazy Story by Huncho the God. Hell yeah. I'm probably listening to it while I'm cooking. Rest in peace. I'm probably listening to it while I'm cooking my salmon and vegetables tonight. (laughs) I'm gonna get to it. That sounds so so healthy.
It does. I ain't really want it, but you know, it's what I got. I gotta eat it. We we got food at the house. Whew. There That's go. how I treat myself these days. There it goes. Exactly. Um, So like we said before in this episode, we're going to have a part two of mental health and the Black community. Um, So yeah, until then, bye Trappers. Bye-bye, (laughs) y'all.